better mentoring, better planning, and better ethics for security professionals. Welcome to another episode of the Security Management Highlights podcast from ASIS International. Every month, we focus on the trends and topics the world needs to know about your world of keeping information and people safe. I am your host, Brendan Howard, and today we talk with Pinkerton's Alan Grego about mentoring security professionals. Then, Mohammed Shazad and John Hall with security solution provider Atriod get back to basics with a call to do a little better job at project managing security plans from the start. And last but not least, we close with Michael Bacon, CPP, among other certifications. He is managing partner at Resolve Risk, and he's a corporate security pro who was caught in the storm of the Wells Fargo sales scandal and lived to tell about it. But first, Alan Grego, who is a part of the mentoring community available through ASIS, explains how situational leadership plays into his concept of mentoring. So the question is, what if you paid careful attention at the start to figuring out where a mentee's knowledge level was, what their commitment was to the work, and ultimately their goals? What are they hoping to gain? And helpfully enough, he's got letters for all the levels. I put forth um, some examples that I can go over. Please. Um, if my mentee is what we call a, a D1, developmental one, which means they understand the job somewhat, but they're still learning it, but they're really committed. They're really, they're gung-ho, they want to do a good job. So if I were to be a mentor and I related that level and saw that a person, maybe a first year security officer, um, might fit a D1 development level and they're, they're committed to doing a good job, but they need to learn more, the mentor might find themselves explaining more about the competencies than other developmental methods. So mentors should be keenly aware of the learning that the mentee is experiencing and be complimentary of their progress, be motivational, and sometimes may have to give them information to help them to understand their job. Okay, that is fascinating. I love that you started kind of at the beginning because it goes D1, D2, D3, D4, and you kind of talked a little bit about D1. I think there is a default position where we as capable employees and employers out in the world go out and you just can't help but think everybody's at your level. And so I think maybe this is just a nice reset for people to think, hey, no, no, you need to rev back 15 years before. What was your mindset? Where were you when you were? You could have called yourself a D1. So it encourages like this mindset shift for people. That's right. So we we really, and that's a trap that I think a mentor falls into that they they tend to forget. You're right. Yeah. They they forget that um, they started out uh, at one point too. And you, as a mentor, you may end up with a, a mentee who is a development level four, which means they're highly skilled, um, and they're um, they're a decision maker in their department. So the commitment level is very great. And they are just seeking a mentor because they have a specific thing they want to learn or they want to enhance their goals and objectives. They're looking for, so as a leader, maybe a, a CSO of a security department in a corporation, but they just may want to learn a little bit more about time management. So it's not necessarily coming under the umbrella of what they do. It's how they manage themselves. Maybe they want to do better at appealing to the board of directors when they go to them um, with a return on investment plan to 
to try to uh, get the board to agree to do something. And this is important for the mentee to understand there may be some things that they don't know how to do. And, and so their best bet would be to help them find that mentee who's really uh, established to find the right mentor who can help them to solve the problem. Okay, I did want to ask about that because given the fact when you think about the wide range between D1 to D4, D4, again, a highly skilled, highly effective person who has a particular question or an issue that they want to talk over with someone who's also experienced all the way back to an early learner who's just getting into it. They need all the compliments and they need all the support and all the, you know, the the attaboys exactly. and attagirls. Yeah. And they might need some close instruction, too, on how to do what they're supposed to be doing. You know, the, the mentor may be filling in the gaps for them just on job performance because they're at that learning level. A mentor or a chance to help a mentee is just a few clicks away. You can go to ASISonline.org, click on professional development, then click on mentoring program. Now, we turn from people to... Well, people. So the days when you could create a security plan and get it implemented and funded without input from all these other departments are probably gone. So it's more crucial than ever to set up a clear decision-making process so all the stakeholders know what's planned, who's doing what, and where the money's coming from. So let's start. Mohammed, who wants to sell you on the process, gets into it right here. Process really can dictate and make informed decisions um, for all parties involved. And it also gives a level of comfort and confidence uh, to the end user uh, that they're getting uh, uh, the, the right security platform that meets their functional needs. And so the very first thing to identify that is that who are all the different stakeholders in it that are going to be engaged that are going to influence the security of that particular physical space and right now we're talking design so we're talking more physical spaces rather than operations and so really identifying um, the right people uh, within security and outside of security because they very heavily influence how security systems are going to get designed and deployed. That's corporate real estate, facilities, IT, uh, your leadership. Uh, are they aligned with what you're trying to do? Uh, and then having a very organized process that creates a channel for requests, documenting requirements, validating and confirming those requirements, uh, creating um, the right type of risk metrics around, you know, what would happen if we go down these paths? Do they align with all the different goals that the company is trying to achieve? And it's not a difficult process. It's not overwhelming or that, you know, there's not enough fees. Uh, it's, a, it's a very straightforward process that can really help you create a very informed, upfront, documented, and and published design um, that then everybody knows uh, what's in it, what's involved in it, and now you can proceed in a very efficient manner to execute that design. Yeah, Brendan, I think also that the following a, a, a structured process like that also gives the folks, uh, the client, if you will, an understanding that they're uh, they're being heard that they that they're dealing with a, a professional team who have knowledge down you know uh, regarding security and it really helps um, 
solidify the, their decisions as they move forward, that they're they're not just uh, winging it, so to speak. So if somebody were sort of designing a security system internally or in kind of in a case you're talking about where kind of you have a client, so you're designing a security system for somebody outside your own company. In either case, is there ever a sense that do security people ever keep the process trimmed down, maybe too trimmed down because they're worried about too many cooks in the kitchen or they know there are conflicting visions. And so they're like, if I can sort of skirt around this person, I won't have that problem. Where have you seen that pop up and how does the process take care of that? Yeah, so that's a, that's an excellent question. So that's exactly some one of the reasons for which you want to have uh, an organized project process because our experience has been that when you've actually engaged everybody, in an understanding manner, you want to understand why the building is being built the way it is, why the leadership wants to weigh things the way they are. You can actually create a lot better design for yourself because now you're being heard and you're also hearing others. It becomes a much more collaborative uh, process and effort, uh, as opposed to if you're trying to skirt something and you're trying to get something in, uh, you know, that might work, uh, but it might not work also. It has a lot more chance. (laughs) Because the thing is this, if you are creating, if you're organized about it, if you're informed about it, if you're collaborative about it, it's possible that you may not get that on day one. But it's very likely that you will get, if you have good reasoning behind it, good business drivers behind it, that you'll you'll end up uh, getting it on day two, day one and a half. And then you will have what you need on day one as well. So there's a lot of different ways. When you start down that road and when you start down that process, there's a lot of different ways to get what you're looking for and also to understand what what everybody else is uh, looking to accomplish. So it just makes it for a much, much better process. So our experience has been the other way around. Uh, uh, Security departments that we've worked for have gone and convinced leadership uh, of a lot more money in, in, in investments in security and more complex and advanced systems uh, than they would have ever done on their own. Uh, it's just, uh, it also helps leverage other resources that can then help you or that can be part of that uh, part of that team to facilitate that, facilitate that for you. So there, there's good reasons for it. I'm thinking as we're having this discussion, I'm thinking more of over the last 20 years. So back to your question, let's say 20 years ago, the security part department was its own entity, right? Um, they didn't rely on much outside of their own um, folks to get something done, to get something uh, installed or implemented. Uh, but now all your cameras are IP cameras. A lot of your devices are network devices out at a door or out at a, uh, a sensor point. And so you have to involve your IT, your network department, your cyber uh, group. All of those folks are now entwined into a, a decision on security, whereas previously you could, you could keep it to yourself, you could put your package together, you could go upstairs to leadership and, and get dollars approved, uh, but now you have to involve everyone. And so those other stakeholders have become very valuable partners. And so you need to nourish those relationships internally. Um, and from our perspective, externally, we need to help kind of build those relationships. In some places, it's very uh, competing uh, interests and they don't always get along, but we try to help create uh, relationships where they do get along. Okay, so if you've sold somebody on the process, I wanna hear about maybe, I'm sure it's way more detailed than we can get into, but I'm curious, maybe 
you could explain kind of the timeline pillars that sort of work through this process that security people should think about if they're thinking about this? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's basically setting up project governance. That's what it is. Uh, upfront, having a project governance framework, how this particular project will be run and managed. That's, that's as simple uh, as that. What does that mean? Uh, the very first step is roles and responsibilities. Who is who on this? Uh, what are their roles? Uh, what do they do? How do they influence and interact with security? And how are, um, uh, and how are they facilitating the role of the security design within that project. That's one. Once you've identified that, next is your decision-making process. Who are the people who are going to be making decisions? Who are the approvers? Uh, what is the um, what is the chain of command, if you will? Uh, that's also important from a day-to-day down-the-road project success standpoint, that you're talking to the right people. You're not bypassing somebody who is relevant to decision-making chain. If you haven't identified that upfront, my contract is with the architect, so I only talk to the architect. If, if you take that approach, you are going to be limited. You're actually going to miss out on certain opportunities or certain conversations that could help you create a better design process. So decision-making process, communication and escalation process, and then the documentation process. Uh, what is the what is the chain of distribution? Uh, what are you documenting? Uh, identifying certain milestones that are going to be critical for you to achieve decisions, whether it's documenting functional requirements or meeting with IT or meeting with corporate real estate, those critical milestones. And then the last thing is um, the leadership ask. That is to us and to me personally, if you haven't identified the leadership ask for the entirety of the project, I'm not even talking security. If you didn't understand that and you just focus on one aspect or element of security or one area, you have a much higher chance of running into issues or problems. Whereas if you know what the leadership ask is, if you know what the business drivers are, then you have a much higher chance of a much more sophisticated design. This is also becoming relevant um, in complex security projects, because now you no longer, to John's point, have a you know a VCR, DVR type system. You have integrated platforms, landlord integrations. You got facial recognition coming up. You have identity management. HR feeds are being integrated. So for that to happen effectively and successfully, you can't get into the project and then try to figure out who the people are who should we talk to. You have to set that up up front. People are going to change. More players are going to come in and out. That's okay. But once you have a process, if you have a if you have a announced, informed, documented governance and change management process to run your project, it's very easy to manage that. And the you know one of the things that I, I said earlier is that this is not an intensive process for us. This is one meeting. It's a one meeting upfront in the project in which we identify all of those people, all of that process. So this is not something that's extremely extensive or requires you know meetings of its own or a scope of work of its own. It's one meeting, maybe two at times, uh, just to clear, uh, identify everything, document everything, and that's how you then uh, start. From plans well laid to ethical concerns ignored. Let's start with the so-called sales scandal in recent memory at Wells Fargo. Sales goals were so high at the bank that employees at the retail level, even brand new hires, were setting up accounts and debit cards without client permission to hit their benchmarks. Michael Bacon CPP was chief security officer, and he wanted to figure out why single mothers at the bank who desperately needed this new job 
and veterans recruited by Wells Fargo were winding up in meetings months later being fired for fraud. He raised the red flag in presentations and communications to executives for years, but no one listened. Until eventually lawyers did, and the government, and a writer for American Banker magazine. Michael will be sharing his experiences and what he learned about ethics in a special presentation at GSX this month, but he talks to us here about some of what happened years ago. It was a, a series of ethical breakdowns. And so during my career within a corporate security role, you know, it was everything from, you know, possible kickbacks to vendor management issues to falsified expense reports. From a security and investigative position, I was just was able to see a lot, a lot of inappropriate behavior, inappropriate conduct. And, you know, that culminated because it was a large corporation with you know, well, close to 200,000 employees. And at the end of the day, you know, I learned a lot about ethics. I learned a lot about personal ethics and leadership and, and business ethics and then even corporate ethics. And the, the ride through the cell scandal, which has now, you know, been exposed in public, you know, literally took out the entire C-suite, took out the entire board of directors, and then it took out a lot of middle management, be it attorneys, be it HR professionals. And not to mention the thousands upon thousands of employees that were impacted by this. And to have that front row, watch it, you know, from the onset, watch it manifest itself. And then what pained me as a professional and, and someone that felt he had extremely high ethical standards was to, to, to witness nobody, not, not a single executive responding to the, to the issue. And, and, you know, unfortunately turning what I think it could, equivalents to a uh, turning a blind eye. And so, you know, I had that front row seat. I escalated the issues. The team escalated the issues from a security and an investigation standpoint, a key activity standpoint. And, and it just, it never was properly addressed until after I left. And then it obviously became exposed. And, and now we know the outcome and the financial impacts to the company the financial impacts to everyone that had a 401k, you know, the brand and reputation damage, and then again, the just the impact to countless people's personal and professional lives. So it was just unique to be in a security leadership role, uh, but to have that view at such a high level was was just incredibly um, educational. And and now I look forward to sharing that with with audiences and and those that can make an impact within within their profession. Frustration, I think a lot of corporate security people can relate to in some of their places now or in the past. Even if they have a seat at the table, people don't seem to be listening. People don't want to be given the resources to track these these problems. And so you were kind of tucked in there and eventually it ended up with a with a resignation and, and years later being interviewed after the fact. I'm wondering if you sort of encapsulate what you learned kind of being in that hothouse situation ethically. Are there things you learned, things you would have done differently, or just things maybe that you were become painfully aware of when it comes to corporate security and ethics in that situation? The reality is for the entire security profession, individuals need to realize what they see. And they're, they're in a very unique position to see a lot of things 
that a normal department head or another employee would not see. And, and that's an unusual vantage point for a security professional or an investigations professional. You know, they, they see what's going on. They have a, a, a good understanding of, of the people, the, the business processes, and, and some of the unfortunate outcomes. So um, that's one, you know, foremost is for people to recognize they're in that role and they do have an unusual vantage point. Would I have done anything different? No, I'm, I'm very proud of what I did, what the team did, and it ultimately unraveled. And it was all about properly escalating issues and documenting issues. So one of the things that I, I will be talking about is there's three types of leadership, if you will, from my vantage point. One is leading yourself, um, then leading the team, and then leading your program. And having high ethical standards and being able to live with yourself um, is core to leadership of self. And so I worked really hard uh, escalating, you know, going to the different stakeholders and doing everything I could to a point where I realized it's not going to change. And, and that's when I walked away was at the moment that I would have become part of the problem had I taken a different course. And, and that certainly took courage. Um, it was scary, two kids in high school, but you know, we all have to live with ourselves and it, it became a breaking point. But at the end of the day, the reality from the government's perspective and the regulators is we did our job. The security division has had tremendous accolades of, you know, doing the good work, doing the investigations, but most importantly, escalating the issues and reporting the trends. So one of my key messages at GSX certainly going to be around leading yourself and and being able to recognize your personal ethics and your professional ethics and know when you know you have concerns and what to do about them. And then more importantly, you know, having that vantage point of of seeing things um, at an individual level, taking action at a corporation level, uh, but even at a business process level and ensuring that security professionals you know, I hate to say the see something, say something, but it's similar. You, you see something, you observe something, you need to escalate it and create a paper trail, you know, do what you can within your individual role, but engage others, engage audit, engage HR, uh, engage, you know, leadership. Um, and then if, if necessary, you know, regulators or government officials. Um, we need more people and we see it again in the news all the time, Brenda. We just... We need people to hold and, and have strong ethical uh, foundation in, in, in all of our jobs and all of our professions. So I'm, I'm going to do a little preaching on that point during, during the session. Can I ask a little bit? Oftentimes, I, I see some stuff in the corporate security world when people are talking about getting a seat at the table. Um, the corporate security person needs to understand what the biz, what the uh, the business forces are at play and what their bosses and their bosses' bosses are looking for from them out of running an efficient, successful organization. And then part of it is, well, you need to explain this stuff the right way. So you need to take your security understanding and sort of translate it into the business world. And I noticed, it's just a little thing in your article, but but they focused on a little bit. The people who said you did come and explain things to them, well, some people, their hand-waving was, well, it didn't seem that big a deal, or I didn't understand what he was talking about. And so you were very clear about, I could not have made it clearer on multiple occasions. It was totally clear, but they did sort of 
the people on the other side hand waved the people on the other side of the table from you and said, we didn't really understand it. Could you tell me a little bit maybe about have you encountered that before where you were explaining something and is it that they don't understand it or they don't want to understand it? Yeah, that, um, you know, there, there's a there's a huge mystery here that I, I'm going to hopefully be working in the academic space to try to help solve. And that that is why did this bother some people like me, probably the, the lowest paid C-suite individual versus all of these other people. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I can't okay. quite understand how it bothered me to the core and, and it upset me. It bothered my team and to, to see how this business process was affecting individuals. I, I don't quite know. I, I will tell you that certainly part of it, I think, is greed. I think we can all, you know, acknowledge that people make money and, you know, they don't want to rock the boat. Um, and that's unfortunate. I think part of it was was a little bit of the greed, um, you know, not being, you know, they didn't want to be seen as that person. Um, but I don't understand it for the, for the life of me. I, I don't understand how how professionals in all of the disciplines, be it HR, legal, operations, could see things and it's black and white. And, and you're right. I certainly in, in the article, uh, and it was an American Banker article, I, I addressed that. I, that. That's a cop out. That was a flat out excuse. We're all business people. People understand numbers. People understand up. People understand down. People understand trends. Um, so it was ludicrous for any of the executives to make that claim. It, 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 that is just not accurate. And I know for a fact, having that fortunate or unfortunate seat at the table, that they did understand it and they knew it um, and they chose not to act. And, you know, it, you know, it was seen by some as a cost of doing business. But when you have any business process that's unethical and that leads to unethical results, you know, distrust in customers, uh, loss of, you know, customer confidence, uh, but impacting employees, terminating employees was so personal. And those numbers were out there. Everybody knew it. And yeah, some people accepted that as a cost of doing business, which I found extremely unacceptable. This just seemed wrong to you on a gut level that we are setting up sales numbers that the only way to achieve them is these people feel they have to act unethically. And so there's a mass amount of firing of people at the in the trenches in this in this banking system it bothers you and you're like i don't understand why people aren't bothered with ethics do you think it's a problem the problem is people haven't studied the ethics enough they don't know the rules they need to follow or do you think as you hinted maybe there this is human nature greed will lead you to ignore that little the little you know cricket on your shoulder that says maybe this is wrong because you know you don't want to mess up the money for you and all the people around you. So do you think it's a character thing? How could have Wells avoided the the you know the outcome? Right? What could have been done at an academic level that that could have changed course when there's so many people? It, I think there's the one study of the Abilene paradox where everybody gets in a car and drives all the way to Abilene to get ice cream and nobody wanted to do that. Um, you know, this was similar, you know, what caused it. But that being said, the mystery of that, I think it was individual level. I was the last person in that group that had the influence or power to make a change. Um, I could expose people to the to the issues. I could escalate the issues, but I had no authority to make any change. But everybody else at that table did risk management, HR, legal, and it did come down to a personal character issue. 
And that's something that I wanted to communicate out, you know, post the scandal that I communicated in the article is that, you know, one, one adage, Brennan, is uh, who knew what when? And that came out clearly in the court proceedings. Everybody knew it and they knew it a long time ago. And so that's the point. It came down to individuals that it just didn't bother them enough um, that they took that personal courage to, to take a leap. I am going to talk about this as well at the session, that we all have to have a plan B. We, we all have to have a plan B. And I think part of a lot of astonishment for people when they looked at me, when I walked away, I walked away from a, you know, a large salary, a lot of stock options. Um, I had two kids in, in, in high school fixing to head to college. Um, I was not in the financial position just to walk away from this huge corporate job at the pinnacle of my career. But I couldn't stay. I, I, it didn't, the money did not matter. It, it just didn't, for me, it just did not matter. And I think it does matter for most people. I expect people in the audience to be sitting on some ethical issues and they're afraid. They don't want to lose their job. They can't afford to lose their job. So I'm going to have to address that. We're, we're going to have to talk about that. But I think everybody has to have a plan B. Um, and, and how, you know, how that entire C-suite could continue day to day knowing what was happening. I, I just, that's the part that just boggles my mind because it, it really hurt me personally and professionally. And it was easy, which is unbelievable, easy for me to walk away from that environment. Um, I felt better day one. So if you're out there with an ethical dilemma, security folks, Michael Bacon gets it. Keep fighting the good fight and look for that plan B. And that is it for the latest episode of Security Management Highlights. Thanks to our guests, Alan Grego, Mohammed Shazad, John Hall, and Michael Bacon, CPP. If you're interested in reading more about these topics, check out the links in the show notes. And if you got excited about something here, share this with your friends inside and outside of security management, because the world needs to know how vital and awesome this field is and leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. We would appreciate it. Find us at sm.asisonline.org. And hey, be safe out there. <laughs>